So this morning our gospel lesson comes to us from the 13th chapter of Luke. So if you have your Bible, if you want to open it to Luke in whatever version you're comfortable with, I'll be reading from the message version this morning, starting at verse 18. And in this scripture, in Luke 13, it's one of those passages where you simply have to read it and in order to understand it, take it in in context of the larger chapter. And here Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Um, He's on the way and he's preaching and he's teaching in towns and villages. And he's explaining to anyone who will listen how to reach God. And so, beginning in verse 18, Luke writes, Then Jesus said, How can I picture God's kingdom for you? What kind of story can I use? It's like a pine nut that a man plants in his front yard. It grows into a huge pine tree with thick branches and eagles build nests in it. See, Jesus is saying that the small, unassuming seed of truth, from that little seed, a greater increase is produced. The kingdom of God starts with a tiny seed planted within each believer. And it grows into a big, strong tree of faith that's capable of sustaining not only the person who has the faith, but also supporting many others who see it and flock to it, make their home in it because of the safety and the satisfaction that it offers. Are you a tree of faith this morning? And when it appeared that not everyone understood Jesus' parable, Luke says that Jesus tried again. How can I picture God's kingdom? It's like yeast that a woman works into enough dough for three loaves of bread and waits while the dough rises. See, the people were expecting that the kingdom of God would come from some external Force and establish itself like earthly kingdoms tend to do, usually with violence and with conquest. That's what they were looking for. But Jesus was telling them that the kingdom of God would come from within. It would establish itself silently, growing a little by little, like yeast that's leavening the dough, changing it from the inside out. A little bit of yeast, a little bit of truth going a long way and eventually leavening enough for three loaves, for all of it, for completeness, in other words, for everyone to be leavened. And so Luke continues in verse 22. He says, Jesus went on teaching from town to village, village to town, but keeping on a steady course toward Jerusalem. See, this is saying that Jesus was a Methodist. Not just itinerant, but he was traveling from village to village, town to town. An itinerant preacher traveling like in the days of Wesley and Asbury and the like. Now, I'm joking, but that is the gist of it. Early Methodist preachers traveled because that's what Jesus did to spread the gospel. 
We see that the emphasis here that Jesus was on a mission, on a steady course to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is the city where he would eventually be received as Messiah, riding in triumphantly on the donkey, palm branches laid out before him. Jerusalem, the city where he would be rejected, unjustly tried and convicted, humiliated, scourged, crucified, dying on the cross for us. Jerusalem where he would be entombed and then three days later break open the stone door and emerge victorious, risen from the dead. Jerusalem, it means so many things to us, doesn't it? The city that will one day be transformed into the seat of power for Christ's reign as king over all the earth when he returns in his glory with all the saints. See, Jerusalem, through the passage of time, means many things. And Luke continues in verse 23. A bystander said, Master, will only a few be saved? And he said, whether few or many, that's really not your concern. Put your mind on your life with God. This is great advice for all of us. The way to life to God is vigorous and requires your total attention. See, a lot of people are going to assume that you'll sit down to God's salvation banquet just because they've been hanging around the neighborhood all of their lives. And one day... You're going to be banging on the door, wanting to get in, but you'll find the door locked and the master saying, sorry, you're not on my guest list. And we'll protest, but we've known you all our lives. And he'll interrupt us in mid-sentence and say, your kind of knowing can hardly be called knowing. You don't know the first thing about me. And that's when Luke writes, that's when you'll find yourselves out in the cold, strangers to grace. You'll watch Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets march into God's kingdom. You'll watch uh, what you assume are outsiders stream in from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they'll sit down at the table of God's kingdom. And all that time you'll be outside looking in, wondering what happened. This is called the great reversal. The last in line put at the head of the line and the so-called first ending up last. See, that's an eye-opener for us as we sit in our pews and call ourselves Christians. See, Luke is telling us we shouldn't be spending our time worrying about whether the Baptists across the street have it right or wrong with this full immersion baptism. We shouldn't be concerned about the countless other ways that we segment ourselves as Christians. Jesus tells us that we should put our mind on our own life with God. We have to pay attention to what God is telling us in His Word and apply it in our lives. Jesus is telling us that getting through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life with Him is rigorous. 
It requires discipline. It requires that we stay focused on who Jesus is and, then, and on who we are in Him. And so it's not enough just to go through the motions. It's not enough to sit in the pew on Sunday and act like a Christian if your heart is not truly in it. It's not enough to profess to be a Christian on Sunday and then act like something else every other day of the week. Now, I always like to use the story of Deacon Estes. Poor old Deacon Estes. See, Deacon Estes was a deacon in a, in a large church somewhere up north on the east coast, maybe New Hampshire. And he was a likable guy. And he spent much of his adult life in church. He attended regularly on Sunday and he arrived early enough each week to spend time around the coffee bar with his friends. And he talked about the big game and making plans for the golf outing or the fishing trip or whatever. He liked going to church. It was a great place to meet his friends, make business connections. It filled some of the time that he used to spend with his late wife. And as the hour approached for church to begin, he'd put on his deacon's badge and he'd take his place at the door of the sanctuary and he'd pass out bulletins and he'd shake hands. And when the music started, he'd dutifully close the doors to the sanctuary and he'd take his usual spot, third row down on the right side. Nobody ever took Deacon Estes' spot. Everyone knew that's where Deacon Estes always sat. And then as the pastor would begin to preach, Deacon Estes would routinely look at his watch. He'd think about the game schedule. He'd recall who was playing who, what their ranking was, what time was kickoff. Deacon Estes knew that if the pastor said the final amen of the sermon at 11.40, he'd still have plenty of time to make his way home to see the pregame show. One Sunday in particular, the pastor was a bit long-winded. Never happens at countryside. And as 11.40 came and went, the pastor didn't appear to be wrapping up the sermon at all. But instead, he started talking about Jesus being your personal Savior. Personal Savior, Deacon Estes said to himself. What does he mean by that? Isn't Jesus everybody's Savior? And so as 11.45 ticked by on Deacon Estes' watch, the pastor began to invite people to the rail to pray and to accept Jesus. For crying out loud, Deacon Estes said, people are actually going to the rail. This could take a while. By the time 11.55 ticked by, Deacon Estes had had enough. He quietly got up, made his way to the back of the church, dropped his deacon's badge in the basket and slipped away to the parking lot to drive home to catch the pregame show that he was sure had already started by the time he got there. Thanks to that long-winded pastor and those people who found it necessary to take up so much time going to the rail for whatever reason, personal savior, he muttered and grumbled about it being such nonsense. 
See, Deacon Estes sat in church Sunday after Sunday thinking about everything but what was being preached from the Word of God. He never cracked the Bible on his own initiative. He never attended even one of the church's many classes or Bible studies. He never prayed. He never, in, never entered into a relationship with Jesus at all. He looked like a Christian. He spoke Christianese like a Christian. He went to church like a Christian, but really never put any heart, any effort, any thought into actually being a disciple of Jesus. And so sadly, on that day, when Deacon Estes passed from this life, Despite all the trappings of a Christian funeral and burial and the engraving of a cross on his tombstone, when Deacon Estes stood before Jesus that day, Jesus sent him away saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so we come to today's Gospel reading where Jesus, as he wraps up his talk about reaching God, is interrupted by some Pharisees and they say to him, run for your life. Herod's on the hunt. He's out to kill you. And Jesus said, tell that fox that I've no time for him right now. Today and tomorrow, I'm busy clearing out the demons and healing the sick. The third day, I'm wrapping things up. Besides, it's not proper for a prophet to come to a bad end outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killer of prophets, abuser of the messengers of God. How often I've longed to gather your children, gather your children like a hen, her brood safe under her wings. But you refused and turned away, and now it's too late. You won't see me again until the day you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of God. See, in these few verses, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is what Jesus laments. It's a whole nation of people who didn't know enough to approach the rail and accept him as their personal savior. An entire nation of deacon Estes who had better things to do than actually give themselves in worship to their God. And they went through all the motions. But when presented with anything of truth and substance, they rejected it. They drove it away. They killed it. An entire nation of people who, when they finally realize who Jesus is, have missed the boat and the opportunity for salvation. And we have to question, are we any different than Israel? Is the community around us any different than Israel? Are are we a people concerned about the clock on the wall every Sunday and blissfully ignorant of who we are in Christ? When the invitation comes to approach the rail and accept Jesus, are we already headed for the parking lot? Are we consumed with other activities rather than focusing our attention on getting through the narrow gate that leads to God? This is what the Lenten season is about. A 
examining our hearts and really taking stock of where we are with Jesus. Because what you do with Jesus determines where you spend eternity. You were created to be a forever being. And you are. And so the question is, where will my home be for eternity? Will it be in Jerusalem? Because Christ is saying, he's lamenting this Lenten season, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children. Where will you spend eternity? Where will your loved ones spend eternity? Where will your friends spend eternity? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.